This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 185, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Gert Silvest, co-founder of supply chain finance fintech TradeShift, to talk about network-based finance. TradeShift's last round of financing in 2018 was led by Goldman Sachs and raised a cool quarter of a billion dollars, so they might know a thing or two about network-based finance, as they also have an amazing one and a half million companies connected on their platform and have done an astonishing in excess of three quarters of a trillion dollars in transaction value, which sounds like quite a lot to me. I did a quick Google for network-based finance to give you a nice, simple half a dozen words on it rather than my waffle, but Google, or perhaps rather DuckDuckGo, didn't come up with anything. So this is obviously very hot and sexy if the giants in search don't know about it. So rather than me waffle about it, we will get Gert to explain it more simply and more clearly and more precisely, no doubt. So without further ado, let's dive into this one and find out such basic things as what on earth is network-based finance in the first place? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Gert. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, in this sort of slightly limbo land world we all live in these days, one of my uh, not exactly guilty pleasures, one of my pleasures has been a channel called Vagabond Awake, which is kind of travel porn. This is some American guy who's about 60 or something. And uh, 20 years ago, he gave up working in an office in America. And he literally spends 99% of his life just traveling around the world and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he's now got passive income and all these kind of things. Anyway, he was talking to somebody recently about Thailand and what the restrictions have been in Thailand and what it's been like being there. This guy said, oh, it's good to meet you in a kind of American way. And I thought, well, you haven't actually met him. You're talking to him (laughs) over Google. So... It just occurs to me and say, oh, thank you for joining me on the show today. This is in the modern 21st century version of uh, thank you for the sort of being a bunch of pixels on my screen. Uh, and so definitely thank you for that. But actually, in terms of uh, joining you, were I to join you, I would have the pleasure of going somewhere I've never actually been before, funnily enough. It's a bit of an omission. Denmark. So what's Denmark like in this sort of limbo land or, or maybe as the sun rises on limbo? So right now, my favorite time of year. So so summer enjoying all the benefits of uh, the climate crisis, so slightly warmer than normal summer. In terms of of lockdown, I I think we've handled it fairly responsibly, meaning aggressively uh, lockdown, meaning that that we are fairly far out of the lockdown. Although I think think some countries are are further ahead on the vaccination. Our numbers are, are quite good, so things have started opening. I've been following the Euros, so when the national team started playing in 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 the local stadium we could actually start putting in thousands of, of spectators there so so that was kind of the one of the early signs of of things opening up again yes we have no sense of reason whatsoever at all over here all that should we do there's a rationale which is that if you're an important person you don't have to follow the rules um, and it, only the little people which is the 99.9 percent have to follow the rules so notoriously over here the g7 and the g8 had all their sort of mass distance photos and then had a sort of slap at barbecue where they ignored the lot and as you may have heard uh, in terms of football 
two and a half thousand important people like corporate sponsors and UEFA officials, they could come here, uh, don't worry about this quarantine, that's just for little people uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, sort of the football's been a little bit notorious over here, along with just being part of American cultural imperialism and, um, you know, picking up sort of tropes of the issues that America's got. So, yes, it's rather taken the edge off it, actually, although being pretty English and although I've got a flat learning curve, I did a couple of decades ago, you know, it's, there's enough pain in life without supporting England. So fortunately, for the last about 15 or 20 years, I haven't had the sort of the challenge of supporting England in any kind of championship and then finding out they lose on penalties in the semi-final and that they'd never practiced penalties. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Despite the fact the last three championships, they had gone to penalties, this particular team hadn't even practiced it. So you think, oh, forget it, forget it. I'll start supporting Denmark, <laughs> something, something much better. So in terms of your um, career journey, uh, Trade Shift, uh, as I understand, is, is sort of West Coast uh, America. So my geography has got a bit weak as a result of not travelling. But Denmark's quite a long way from San Francisco. But maybe if we end up with that part about why you're in Denmark, <laughs> exiled, or, or, or why have you exiled everyone else? And tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So um, I actually started studying music sometime in the 90s, uh, but was always interested in, in computers. So it was kind of double interest. And then around the turn of the, the year 1000, I, I jumped ships completely to, to, to computers. I started my career with, with Accenture and worked on the emerging, within the emerging area of, of software as a service and, and, and cloud. And got to join actually public sector projects where, where I met my two co-founders of, of TradeShift, uh, Christian and Mikkel. And that you can see kind of became formative because we, we worked on a project that was all about moving the Danish public sector to 100% electronic invoicing. And we started looking at what, what did the industry actually look like and what were the success rates. And I think much to all of our surprise, we could see that electronic invoicing only accounted for below 5% of, of the total global volumes of, of invoice. So you can imagine billions and billions of, of people, pieces of papers ex exchanging hand every day in the modern supply chain. So I, I think we're all quite, quite shocked about that. And, and when we then started working for the public sector, we basically looked at the industry and we saw everybody behaved like, you know, the telcos that, that charged uh, high fees for, for people sending SMSs. So every time people send a trade transaction, she would pay by the, by the bit or by the byte. And it just seemed that like post year 2000, that seemed a completely antiquated and not viable business model. So that project, we, we basically said, why, why don't we open source everything? We create some software, we share it with every company that, that wishes to use it. We based everything, the standards around invoicing, purchase orders, trade transactions on, on open document standards. And we basically said, anybody who can follow those standards, they are compliant, they can get an identity on the network, they can participate. So no transaction fees, it was all about lowering the, the thresholds of participation. And lo and behold, in a mere one year from, from that, we had 60,000 companies using that infrastructure. And by today, it's almost 95% of all Danish companies using the standards. So I think what we learned in that project, which was still a government project, was if you start removing the barriers of actually digitizing the supply chain and trading digitally and care more about the value add and the partner ecosystem, enabling companies, ERP system providers that could participate in that, 
you could actually gain rapid traction. And that was kind of a key moment. So, so after spending five, six years together at, at the public sector, we, we were kind of thinking there, there is something there that we simply have to pursue. And that, that is this idea that you can actually digitize if you think differently about you know, how, how you share, share the value of digitization. And that, and that kind of became the, the start of TradeShift. Which year are we talking now than when TradeShift started, roughly? That was 2010. And then a year later, we moved the headquarters to San Francisco to attract also the, 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 the kind of talent that, that we are looking for and to get access to capital and to be near the, the US market, which, which is, of course, a, a huge market, not, not as fragmented as, as the European market. Right. Okay. So we can hear a little bit more uh, later in the show about uh, trade shift. I mean, clearly, you guys understand the 21st century digitization and stuff like that, and, uh, and you did it well, and the business grew out of a real use case. You're a huge player now, uh, although no doubt it could be even larger in the future. And you've got some quite, quite some experience as trade shift now, well, well over a decade, which is quite, quite a long time. And it certainly seems to be the case that things like P2P, which were invented in the 2000s, had at the time, or well, not the time, maybe about 2010, 2012, 2013, 14, a lot of potential and people were expecting them to go far and okay, it went, went relatively far in, uh, in the States. But certainly in the UK, it's never particularly taken off and a lot of them are sort of giving up becoming banks. But uh, maybe you just went to a level below this where you are just, just doing sort of a digitization play and that has continued to have sort of kind of compound growth. But Coming on to, to the, this main course topic, so let's just start with a very simple question which even Mr. Google can't answer, which is, what is, what is network-based finance? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. And I think it's very connected to, to what you mentioned about the, the peer-to-peer lending or the marketplace lending, the emergence of that. I think there is a, a long-term trend now, which I think is based in basically the credit gap that, that exists for small and medium-sized companies uh, everywhere in the world. There was a World Bank study some, some years ago that estimated that the global credit gap was, was around $2.5 billion. So meaning money owed by large buyers to, to their suppliers. At any point in time, there was a $2.5 trillion gap in, in covering that by traditional financial uh, providers. And I think the gap is, is even bigger. I think there's another estimate that says at any point in time, it's, it's like $9 trillion outstanding owed by buyers to sellers. And it's 15, max 20% of that, which is a mix of institutional, non-institutional finances that, that are covering that credit gap. Why do we have this credit gap? I, I think it's, it's a classical power play, you know, large, large buyers being able to extend payment terms. And on, on the other hand, I think it's, it's a kind of information asymmetry. So those actually providing finance, it's simply impractical, impractical to, to understand enough about the companies that you are lending money to, to actually be able to give people access to, to affordable finance. So you have to dig through you know, books, entire company books, or you have to look through papers. You have to trust the records that, that a seller is sharing with you and so on and so forth. So I think that, that put the pressure on, on the whole alternative financing space that people just needed alternative to, to banks and, and factoring and other kinds of finance in this space. And I think that's been an, an ongoing trend for, for at least uh, the last 20 years. I think in, in China, particularly, we saw it almost bloom and explode in a very short time. You know, they, they were late on, on the whole cloud adoption. But once the cloud adoption started, 
then the whole uh, P2P financing space just exploded in China until a, f- a few years ago, they, they actually started regulating that. A so to me, that, that speaks to the fact that there is a huge need for this kind of finance. And I think actually China provides some good images of where is this whole space going. So um, Alibaba Group is, is kind of the big conglomerate that, that corresponds to you know, a combination of Amazon, uh, PayPal, eBay in the US, if, if you want to compare it to something. And at some point, they they started introducing payments. So they're basically operating this marketplace. They're connecting in all these buyers. They're connecting all these sellers. And I think they made a very fundamental decision. And that was to say, we want to support not just payments, but later also finance. We want to make payments free. So because basically, there's no value in facilitating that simple transaction. We, we know banks and other players make a lot of money for just facilitating that. But I think their vision was always that the value is, is someplace else. And I, I think they showed that a few years later when, when they started doing escrow payments. So, so basically, they would hold money to ensure that goods were delivered before releasing money. They added other kinds of financial services, so credit lines, lending, um, you could keep money on the balance, you could earn interest on it. So an estimate from last year was that every user of, of the Alibaba ecosystem on average used something like two, 2.5 uh, different financial services. Now I'm going to go back to, to what is network-based finance. And, and I think this is really about the future of the financial space because, of course, those who operate marketplaces or networks of buyers and sellers, be it Alibaba with the end financial that they spun out, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Google, are all moving into facilitating first and foremost payments, offering wallets to, to, to people everywhere. But I think the secret sauce that they have is of course that they have insight into the, the, the trade transactions and to a level that, that banks have never had. And, and what does that do? It basically means you understand about the relationship between buyers and sellers everywhere. You understand what they buy and what they sell. You understand the demand signals. You understand before anybody can report it to you, the the contours in the market, you see the bullwhip effects. And that's of course puts you in a very different position to offer credit or loans or insurance than current uh, banks or insurance companies. Which, of course, in the transaction, they understand something is paid, but typically they have very little insight into the nature of the relationships, the history of the relationships, what are the goods and services actually being you know, procured or provided. Would it be true to say then that um, network-based finance relies on people being connected by some network online, digitally, that the nature of the flows, and this will vary from marketplace to marketplace, within that mean that whoever's, should we say, just providing the network or sitting on it or managing it or something, has vastly superior information flows about the whole network of relationships than, say, a typical bank does, and therefore can use this superior information partly gained by doing free payments or, or, or something like that, and then somehow, quote, somehow, how hard can it be, somehow monetize that information and therefore outcompete traditional offerers of finance. I think that's very nicely put. 
It's very nicely put, very longly put. It was at that point when I was writing some words like that, I thought, well, that's not very snappy. I wonder what Google has, but Google doesn't have anything, <laughs> anything snappier than that. And, and just picking up on the point, so with things like open banking, PSD2, blah, 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 in principle, I could sort of share with, for the sake of argument, you guys, you know, let's say I'm selling my London FinTech po podcast hoodies around the world, and, you know, oh, you've got a nice network, I'll join your network. So in principle, I could just sort of share the open banking stuff, but that's very clunky. I have to stop clicking on stuffs and informations, and, you know, all you're doing is getting access to the old school sort of banking information anyway, which is, is this almost the other way around from sort of whole open banking initiatives? Rather than freeing up banking data to go elsewhere with various permissioning and pains in the arse and every three months I have to click, oh yes, I still want them to do it. But you've inverted that really, which is to say, okay, let's just forget the, ba the banks. Let's just actually look at what's going on in quotes, the real world economy, unquote. Yeah, no, I, I think that's spot on. So, so it's it's all about the trade transactions. So the orders, the catalogs, the the demand, the the workflows, the approvals, the matchings against purchase orders and goods received, and so so the trade that is actually going on. And then, yes, you need to interface with with the with the financial rails, so to speak, because at the end of the day, people need to get paid. There's credit flowing. If you want to offer finance, you have to fit within the regulatory frameworks and all of that. So at some point in time, of course, you're, you're going to hit the banking rails and you have to understand things like who holds these bank accounts and how do we redirect the flows and how do we make sure that funders are, are made good and sellers are protected and all of that, which is part of what the traditional financial rails, of course, uh, provide. Yes. And, and so that seems to me is turning it into a model where sort of the financial services on the payment side and, and the bank account side are kind of some sort of wholesale -y thing or something which is kind of in the basement of your building but it's it's just what sort of it's what's there it's like you have a building you have an office you've got electricity coming in you've got gas coming in of course you need all these things because you can't run your computer without electricity is coming into your bank and equal in terms of paying uh, people paying each other doesn't matter who they are in the world what money is is literally bits in bank computers. So therefore, quotes, unquotes, you have to connect to bank computers, otherwise you're not connecting to money. If you had a system where, for the sake of argument, you're using Spanish doubloons or something like that, and they were physically sort of transferred around in some sort of mysterious parallel universe, it was easier and cheaper to do that than actually bits in bank computers, maybe because there isn't a, a billion lines of regulation in the way. Uh, but let, let's say this way, you, you wouldn't have to connect to the banking system. You could still do what you're doing in terms of leveraging the information, creating the network. And you just, you know, in, term, in terms of plugging into electricity, in terms of plugging into gas, you'd plug into the Spanish doubloons system, which clears Spanish doubloons around the world and, and they move along little pipes and there's all these doubloons moving along. And that actually wouldn't change your business model at all. Exactly. And, and I think that's kind of also what Again, using the example of, of end financial, I think that's exactly what, what happened in China. So when Jack Ma, he spun out end financial out of, out of Alibaba, I, I think that was an incredible move and incredible that he could do it. And the company instantly received the same, same valuation as, as a Goldman Sachs. In 2020, uh, they set out to raise uh, $34 billion by going IPO. So when they spun it out before, it, it was a private investment round. But at that point, the Chinese government started to intervene. And I think there's a very simple reason for that. And that is a trend I think we are seeing in countries everywhere. That is the, the alternative money flows, whether we are talking platforms like and financial or PayPal or the crypto infrastructures, that the alternative flows of money are, are actually now becoming a channel challenge, I think, to, to how governments traditionally control the flow of money in society, which is basically 
delegating that responsibility to banks. So what we saw in China, I think, is echoed in a, in a milder fashion around the world, where, where regulators are suddenly considering, for example, introducing something as like a digital central bank money. You know, you have societies like Sweden where where the amount of physical money is is below two percent in society, and where everybody you know younger than 20, 25 years, they never use cash for anything. You know, they they are almost a hundred percent on on mobile or or cards, and I think societies around the world are now in a kind of in between position where, where they are trying to make up their minds, what are they going to do about these alternative flows? And it's clear that if you have the marketplaces or, or the network-based finance, that there's in principle no reason to move money through the banks. And I think business to consumer, that's one scenario, but but once that moves into to business to business as well, you know, we we have you know more than a million companies connected in the network. So why on earth shouldn't we facilitate free transactions between those companies? as long as they are on the network. It makes no sense to take money out and move them to the banking rails and, and charging fees for, for, for moving this money. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll come on in a minute to how you use this in supply chain finance and, and the, the minor matter that it, it's really nice doing lots of helpful things for people for free. And I'm sure they're very happy about it. But equally, when you go to the supermarket, they ask you for some of this old-fashioned money, no matter how you... Um, uh, deliver it. But in terms of the advantages of this kind of approach, we can see the pros and we can see that you really are operating at a, should we say, an informational level. And that, as you say, that the, the rails of the, of the banking system are just one potential rails. I've forgotten that name of that sort of um, one of those well, well-known sci-fi fiction-y people. He did a book called Going Postal. Anyway, I can imagine, I can imagine what a parallel universe where you do have these little little pipes and doubloons moving along them and that would do the same or that the, the crypto-y stuff would potentially do, do, do the same as well. So maybe not so much cons because using information is a 21st century thing, but what are the particular challenges of this model? Now, one huge rabbit hole, let's not go down it because it's a whole podcast or series of podcasts in itself, is what happens when cash or any store of value gets deleted, especially in an increasingly totalitarian society where various mega codes of all sorts cancel people for all sorts of uh, reasons. You know, you're, uh, we have seen banks cancelling people. Um, the UK has got this lovely phrase, track and trace. You know, it wants to track and trace absolutely everything all the time. So we're going in a very authoritarian, totalitarian route. At the moment, it remains to be seen whether we can reverse out of this cul-de-sac. So there's a huge, huge sociological issues around there. Let's put all that to one side, not to minimise it. When everything is digital, that gives a hell of a lot of power, as we've seen to the likes of a YouTube, who have been censoring conversations around the origin of the whole bloody virus that's been causing catastrophe around the world, or various things like um, ivermectin, which has been incredibly successfully used in parts of India and Mexico and, and that sort of sense of the crap out of it. So anyway, there's that huge side. Let's put that to one side. Let's just have a sort of technical conversation here. Just say from a just sort of technical perspective, let's say we were run by, you know, a combination of the Buddha, Jesus uh, and Mohammed and Lao Tzu and all these wonderful people with pure hearts and therefore didn't have to worry about that. What are the challenges of, of network-based finance per se? And then let's look at how you guys are leveraging it in supply chain finance. So I think you're talking about some of the, the privacy and control issues of that. So, so I think that that's one, one category. But, but I think even before, in, before we enter into kind of network-based finance nirvana, I, I think there's, that, there's a critical challenge about adoption. And I think before we tip over and, and we can talk about this being the enabler for authoritarian regimes, I, I think we still have to realize how, how little relatively 
the, the adoption of this kind of thing is. And I think right now, actually, um, it's almost like a paradigm shift in, in the thinking of, of large companies, because I think the digitization of supply chains historically have been spearheaded by the mega corporations of this world. And I think the way that they have been thinking about it has been a very kind of inside out approach where it's my supply chain, it's my sellers, it's my digitization, and I'm applying that to my supply chain. I'm basically using the stick and, and forcing people to, to join this digitization revolution. And I think what the past 30 years have shown is that they have been very unsuccessful at that. So if we measure by the level of digitization we have achieved in, in the past 30 years, it's actually very, very little compared to to what we have seen in the B2C space. So it's, it's not going to happen in our lifetime if, if that paradigm doesn't change. So, so I think the number one fundamental enabler is, is shifting your mind to say, when we digitize, how can we make sure that other people in our supply chain, our network, in our marketplace actually share in some of the benefits and some of the upsides of that digitization? So I think before we get to, to the threats of the kind of digital models, the network models, the online models, I think we have to look at that there's a huge potential in the digitization to benefit everybody who participates in it, but that that value is not being shared today. And, and yes. I think that's that that's a simple reason why why there's so low adoption. Yes, and for clarity, I was I was too imprecise, but for clarity, um, uh, the concerns that I'm talking about much more relate to, for example, widespread adoption of central bank digital currencies and the deletion of real currency so that you can no longer keep a sort of stack of money at, at home. I was in London at, at the weekend, had a cup of tea at Brown's. Oh, we don't take cash, sir. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, that, it's that kind of thing. It's not anything wildly even near what you guys are doing, which is, we just say, for the sake of argument, digitizing business transactions and out of the digitization of business transactions, being able to create value for all the participants. That's wonderful. I'm more talking about the rails that that go below you. So, for example, let's say, in in the sake of argument, in the future, you've got all this sort of totally digital and and the the governments have deleted cash. I mean, India, didn't they just delete the 50 rupee note or something terrible like like that that, uh, a while ago? And you've got sort of, for the sake of argument, Bitcoin or Bitcoin 77.0. And then you've got this little sort of fashion pipe of uh, you know fantasy little doubloons going along them those rails could ha- would operate independently and as you say you could um, plug into all them so right so the challenge is the adoption so you know with the likes of networks as we all know if you're a Facebook then you know it's, it's worth joining Facebook because more of your mates will be on Facebook and then that sort of snowballs and snowballs and they get large size and that leads to a challenge that the, the US is trying to address at the moment and, and stumbling through and it may take a sort of a decade to sort this one properly which is that's all very good. So the network-based effect's really cool. Yeah, great, we love that. And then you realise that you've given utterly authoritarian power to one guy running running a, a company, and and that's you know that's very scary. So in the case of uh, supply chain finance, then um, how has TradeShift been pretty successful? I mean, one and a half million sounds like quite a lot on your platform, even if it isn't quite as many as the number of people on Facebook's platform yet. How has TradeShift gone about a recruiting people to the platform, and then b monetizing it? I think it's a it's a very kind of long motion. So so where we really started was you know talking to the Fortune 500 and Fortune 5000 segment of, of companies. So so those that today drive digitization of their supply chains, and and we basically offered what I think the, the very basics, which is electronic invoicing at scale, and 
because to digitize transactions, that that's kind of the first first order of things. That has nothing to do with with finance or, or whatsoever. But I think that's that's why we started the, the conversation with large companies. Uh, our starting point we took then was just to say that when when they onboard other companies, it's, it's free for those companies to to join, because it was our vision that we wanted to provide the value add rather than the raw transactions. So our journey has been 2010 electronic invoicing. We moved into procurement that evolved into marketplaces. So to these very large companies, we sell what is going on inside the company. We support the, the accounts payable processes, the procurement processes, and the collaboration between sellers and buyers. So exchange of catalogs, purchase orders, you know, order uh, collaboration, uh, invoices could receive uh, workflows, approvals, all, all of that kind of stuff. And then since 2013, we started offering supply chain financing, which is a classical buyer supply chain financing where the supplier, uh, sorry, where the large buyer says, you know, these are the suppliers in my supply chain that I want to nominate for supply chain financing, have them participate in the program. You work with large relationship banks on, on, on offering those kind of programs. And where we have evolved it to now is to say, basically, we believe that the future of this space is a seller-centric financing in the network. And that rests on one key principle. And, and maybe that's back to when do things start to, to turn authoritarian. But we based it on the principle and said, basically, people in the network own, own their own data. They can decide what they want to do with it. I, I think that's quite different, for example, from the Facebook model, where it's you provide some data and we, we decide what advertising agencies we, we are going to apply and, and, and make a value add. We're basically saying, when you share information with your buyers in the network, you, you both have the benefit of a two-sided view on things. It's almost like a you know, bookkeeping system, a, a ledger. You have two sides of the view. And everybody can, can choose to, to use that information how they want. So they can opt into finance and they don't need to ask their buyers for permission to do that. And I think that's a, a big departure from the classical SEF because it essentially is based on the same kind of data and insights and trust relationships that you have in the SEF and what enables SEF and, and fairly low rates of, of funding, but puts it, it gives the control to, to the seller, which could be a one-person company or another Fortune 500, right? And so does the monetization then come from the, the fact that you've got a, a cost of money, should we say, of X percent, and then but you sell the money at sort of X plus Y percent, and Y percent is your margin. Is it, is it as simple as that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's as simple as, as, as discounting on, on, on the invoices that, that people are sending. And, uh, and I think the advantage that we have in a network setting is, of course, we can drive out risk for, for, for any funder coming in there because of the level of insight that we have. And I think the second thing is, is that we can drive a competitive financing space. So we are not reliant on, say, the buyers relationship banks or any particular funder, but, but we can create an open marketplace for, for funders. So you've said one thing there, which means, which implies I might be a little bit confused, or rather there's a need for clarity for the listeners. So 
keeping it very simple, um, is the essence that TradeShift are providing all this platform and all this network, and you've got buyers and sellers, and for the sake of argument, keeping it really schematic, you've got banks coming in, uh, and banks can also leverage all this information and all that kind of stuff, and, and it's quotes, again, super simply, free for sellers, free for buyers, but banks pay a little bit of a fee every time they lend money over it. Is it that kind of model, or is it another model where you wholesale go out and raise, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollars at sort of 1%, and you, you on average, get rid of it at 1.1%? Are you, are, you, are you purely a network marketplace? <laughs> There's going to be a third, isn't there? Are you purely a network marketplace or are you a wholesale provider of credit yourselves? Or the third one, of course, is something in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right now we are, we are the plumber. So, so we, are, we are connecting all the pipes and facilitating the flow of information. And, and we can build the, the marketplace so we, we can, we can uh, connect uh, the participants. So, so that can be the funders that want to participate. And we can help create access to, to this information that flows. So this is basically, you can consider invoices and purchase orders match. Those are the digital assets that flow in the network and, and we can help provide access to that. So it's not like we're going out and, and selling, say if we have 10,000 sellers, we're, we're not selling their volume, but we can give the offer to the sellers and they can opt into financing. At that point, the sellers are paying. We are not acting as, as a funders, but we are facilitating the contact between the companies in our network and the actual funders. So we're providing the product. I see. So going back to your parallel or analogy with Facebook, uh, in the case of uh, Facebook, I don't quite know how it works, so I'm not, not on it, but something along the lines that sort of my data is mine, but I can click a box and in an ideal world, Facebook is only allowed to sell it to, I don't know, these kind of people. They can't sell my data to, to I don't know, weapons manufacturers or, or something like that. And they monetize the data by essentially selling the data. Is that, a, is that a parallel with what you're doing here, which is that the sellers and the buyers own their, their data. You give them some little box. If you tick this box, then, you know, for the sake of argument, some Wall Street banks will allow your data and they'll give you a special deals is it that kind of thing yeah yeah it's, it's more that that kind of model right and so think of it almost like like an app store so if, if you have an app on your phone when you install an app you basically decide what is the data that that this app gets access to and it's the same in our network if you want to install the trade of cash app for example you say i'm okay to share my invoice information my relationship information and I know who, who is the funding party that, that I'm going to share that data with. I see. So it's, it, is, it is indeed kind of almost an inversion of the open banking. You're almost like sort of open invoicing, which is actually I can share my commercial transactions rather than my financial information about those kind of commercial transactions. So it's like open commercial information. Good. OK, well, that's been very clear. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was uh, sufficiently lazy and, and didn't try and put lots of words in the introduction about this, because I think what matters most for listeners is understanding the principles behind this rather than sort of a, a snappy summary. What you're talking about, as I say, is very pure 21st century digitization of a certain category of information, in this case, commercial transactions and enabling participants in those transactions to benefit by you producing some nice um, platform and you know, computery stuff and, and all that kind of thing. And then uh, as a business, uh, then there's monetizing this different, this totally different category of data, monetizing commercial transaction data rather than monetizing payments data as with open banking. So at this level of, uh, uh, of abstraction, there are clearly many potential ways it can be done. As you say, the challenge is that 
You've got to get people to do something. <laughs> like It's like any sales process, actually. If you want me to do something, even if it's in my own good, you've got to persuade me to do it. And, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm a bit busy today. Come back next week. You know, just the general commercial thing about trying to change the world kind of stuff. Putting that to one side, though, obviously, network-based finance per se has got sort of huge potential in very many directions. Is there anything just in terms of not doing a whole episode on this, but just in terms of uh, sort of your understanding of what you think is going to be important in the next few years? I think a lot of the kind of pick and shovel kind of stuff, just working on digitizing, rolling these kind of things out in supply chain. I, I think that that's our prime directive right now. What, what we're seeing now is that the value adds that, that we can say to people, it's not about digitizing your paper, but it's it's about joining a network and get paid on day one and, instead of day 60. That's a vastly different message that resonates in a completely different way to, to small and medium-sized companies compared to to, to the other one about digital paper. So that's, of course, a key thing. One of the big potentials I think there is that is realizing the, the full vision of, of network-based finance. And that's, of course, to say those who transact together in a network, I, I see no reasons why you shouldn't be able to do free frictionless uh, transfer of either money in this network or the, the digital assets that, that, in a sense, you are the owner of. And those digital assets are, are your purchase orders, your invoices, your relationships with, with buyers and sellers. So I think our vision for this marketplace is actually one where we keep growing the range of, of apps, if, if you like, or, or the kinds of financial services that we want to offer in the network, allowing people to earn money off of those digital assets that they have today, but which today sit locked up in, in their ERP systems, our accounting systems, and, and so on. So I think it's it's very much about freeing those, those kind of digital assets and building a marketplace around that. Excellent. Well, it's very very clear and very deep and clearly there's a huge potential and I can well imagine in a decade time that your orders magnitude um, greater but, but before we hear a little bit about trade shift and what will make you even greater in a decade's time I'd like to thank all the listeners out there I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast smart is transforming pensions and retirements worldwide their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan find out more at www smart.co and we're recording this a little bit ahead of it being a um, uh, release but uh, I noticed that smart uh, completed their D recently and raised about 145 million or something like that should go quite a long way the unlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today so we've mentioned trade shift once or twice Gert and his background and, uh, and what you're up to are there any points that you haven't mentioned that you'd like the listeners to know and uh, as I say what is it with the, that would make trade shift even bigger and better in uh, a few years time than it is today yeah so so I think right now we we, we, are, we are hiring for, for our, our teams on the financial services side so um, we, we have teams in, in Bucharest that that, that work on, on virtual card technology to use that in, in the procurement process to, to manage spend. We have teams in, in San Francisco that work on our financial service offerings. But overall, I think strong partnerships is, is what, what makes the difference for us. So, so today we, we do have good partnerships with, with banks and, and, and uh, private and other institutional uh, investors. And if I look five years ahead, those are the kind of partnerships that we want to build out. I think a fundamental premise of what we're doing is, is that we, we deal with supply chains. Supply chains are incredibly diverse, both geographically, but also in the terms of, of the kind of companies. So I think the opportunity for partnerships is, is really good. I, I think for us, it's, it's one of the 
what is going to make it or break it. That is, if we are able to establish the right kind of, of commercial partnerships also on the, the, the financial services front. So we actually have have good value add to, to offer the participants in this network and, and these marketplaces. You mentioned before that you guys focused on the Fortune 500 at the beginning, but I mean, obviously the Fortune 500 buys stuff from all around the world and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a kind of spider's web already, even if you just only ever dealt with, with them. And I understand sort of that, you know, that things aren't this simple, but if you were to sort of take a, a globe and particularly say, actually, we're really big in, in, in these particular areas, which are the areas and, w- and which are the, the ones where you think, well, actually, we should be doing more in Romania for the sake of argument. Yeah, yeah. Today, Europe, North America, really, really big in, in terms of customers, but uh, those customers are on both their entire supply chain. So, so we have users in, in literally 190 countries. And if we look to LATAM, South Asia, China, these are very large regions for us in, in terms of, of suppliers. And when we talk about financial services, when we started with supply chain financing, it was servicing those large companies in, in North America and, and Europe. But as we move out and do the seller-centric financing, I think the opportunity is to, to go to those kind of markets and leverage the, the trusted relationships they, they have with large, well-known brands also, also in the West. I, I think it's a huge opportunity. Good. Well, you've done a great job uh, getting to where you guys uh, are today and evolving this very clear and very deep model. I mean, as I mentioned, one and a half million companies is quite a lot and three quarters of a trillion dollars is also quite a lot. Although in terms of, should we say, climbing Mount Everest to an extent as base camp, because I think there's rather more than one and a half million companies in the world doing sort of buying and selling. And uh, the, the total volume of, of transactions, you say, is considerably higher. But you guys sound like you're well on underway. What you're doing is very interesting. And I wish you every success in the future. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? 
Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.